Hi, before we begin, I want to warn you that this episode mentions childhood abuse that you or others around you may find disturbing. If you want to skip this content or get earbuds before continuing, this would be a good time to do so. This is Early Care for Every Kid, a podcast for people who want to make learning, living, and loving more harmonious for everyone. I'm your host, Danielle Ahn. Each week, I interview fellow parents, educators, advocates, and community leaders who care for and work with young children and families. I share their experiences, insights, and specific actionable tips on how you could help make the world work better for everyone. Here's the second half of my conversation with Angelina Torres. Angelina is a mother to three boys, an early childhood educator, and an advocate for children with special needs. In the previous episode, we discussed how she got into early childhood care, why we must meet the basic needs for every child in the early years, and some of her own childcare arrangements as she was working and getting her degree. Today, we share some of the shifts schools and parent caregivers need to better support all children and how to watch out for signs of possible abuse or neglect in young children. Welcome to our conversation. You are an advocate for children with different needs, and you also have children who have special needs, different needs, and having three children, three boys, I imagine each child shows up differently in the world anyways. And I mentioned earlier how I first came across your Facebook post about equity versus equality. If you could talk a little bit more on that, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. I don't have any certification, special needs, and all of us I just want to point it out there. I have experience working and teaching with children who have special needs. It could be any kind of impairment, delay, or disability, where there is a licensed and certified special education teacher on site. They're shadowing me when I'm working with that child. As a mother, that is where my passion for advocacy speaks volumes. My older son, Brandon, who is like a genius of a prodigy kind of kid. By the time he was age three, he was not speaking any words. So I reached out for early intervention. He got services for speech and language delay impairment. And now I can't get him to show up. <laughs> no, actually, no, I take that back. He's a teenager. He doesn't talk mm. to me. The right. He went to like, I can't say a word because I have an impairment. And then a couple of years, I can talk your ear off <laughs> of who I am about Cheerios. And then now he's like, get out of my room, mom. So, so that, he's on the right track. <laughs> um, my eight-year-old, Ethan, also has a language speech impairment, but it's actually different. They both started with IFSP when they turned three. IFSP stands for Individualized Family Service Plan, right? Yes. Then it turned to IEPs, Individualized Educational Plan. So they both have IEPs. And even though they had the same label or diagnosis as a speech and language impairment or delay, it was actually very separate cases. Mm-hmm. Me being young and new in education. And I did that classic parent one-on-one textbook mistake where, oh, he had it. So my kid is the same because it came from my body. And so it's the same exact thing. So word of advice, don't ever compare your kids. It's the mm-hmm. hardest thing to do. The parameters of their language delay, it's actually very, very different. One was more like a pronunciation, articulation kind of thing. One was more literacy and language-based. And then I almost made the same mistake with my two-year-old, who is actually on the spectrum. He was placed and diagnosed by early intervention, August of 2020. I will say that definitely really lit a fire 
of my passion for advocacy for children with special needs. The second you find out something about your kid, you do what other normal parents do. You start Googling things about mm-hmm. autism and then what to do with happen about cognitive development. What do kids on the high functioning spectrum look like this and that? And of course, now again, classic parenting 101. <laughs> but since then, I've definitely been speaking up in the special education community. I've been very privileged to collaborate with other parents and educators and moms where you and I first met on the Momily and the other Facebook pages we belong to. And it's made a really big impact on my perspective on children's needs. Going back to how you and I first met, the Facebook post I put about equality and fairness. I always knew what that was about, but since my Tiro was diagnosed with autism, that just like (sighs) atomic bomb kind of understanding dropped on me. Mm -hmm. That even children who don't have special needs, they could be a typically developed child. They still have needs. Different needs. And Yes, exactly. And just because a child has different needs, whether it's a type of learning, you know, you hear, I'm a visual learner or I learn by listening or one-on-one. It doesn't mean that they're putting other children at a disadvantage. It doesn't mean they're putting the whole class or the teacher at a disadvantage. It just means what it says. I have different needs. It doesn't mean that I'm taking away from anyone else. And it's that part right there is when I see parents or teachers or anyone, when they speak of that topic in another light, like, well, why should this kid, this and this is fairness, like I, I, I cringe. What are some of the reactions that you're talking about? Are you saying some other parents might say, why are these individualized services being provided to this child, whereas my child is getting the standardized Kind of. Yeah, that's one of dozens and dozens of reactions that I see, especially on social media lately, since we're remote mm-hmm. life. But even before that, I won't even say parents. There are teachers and educators out there as well, even faculty or administrative staff in the field of education that I've witnessed that I won't obviously I won't speak names or circumstances, but why should this kid get this and it's not fair to this kid? And I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. Why are you putting them in the same boat? You should be treating them with the respect they deserve and that they are different boats. Not even be a boat. One could be like uh, on a lawn chair in a beach and one could be a boat or in the ocean. Like you have to treat each child as if they're an individual because guess what? That's what they are. I agree completely. It's a whole child, the whole individual and Unfortunately, we can talk about this another day also, and I'd love to get your perspective on that. But I feel like the schools, the educational system is education versus learning. Learning is different from the more industrialized educational system that we have right now, where we provide the standardized education, the curriculum. And then coming from that perspective, I could see how administrators or teachers or other parents might feel like our public dollars are why should this child get the standard and some others get the standards plus alpha or beta yeah i agree with you completely that each person is a whole person with <laughs> completely different needs yeah. so i think the idea of fairness is at issue here where what is fair comes into play yes absolutely it does not amount or equate to equality. Equality is that you have access to the same rights and tools and resources. 
fairness is how you apply those rights and resources and tools based on the individual. Let's say you have a class of 30 kids and I totally get it. Teachers get stressed out and bummed down. Def, like I said earlier, they don't get paid enough. It is a challenge. I'm definitely not saying it's easy to apply individualized teaching to get the outcome of individualized learning. That would be the total utopia ideal world of education for all kids of all ages, even people in college, professors. At the same time, though, aren't we going to school to learn? to be the best of who we are based on what we wanted to learn. It's like that message is presented when we're little, like you can be whoever you want to be, this and that, you can be a doctor, a lawyer, an astronaut. But then that message gets lost and buried in the sand as they get older and they get crammed into a class where really should be like 10 or 50 kids ends up being like 30, 35 kids. And parents and educators are focusing on the inside of the box. I can't do this with this kid because I have 30 other kids to do this and this and this. We're not taking a step back and looking outside the box. Why do you have 30, 35 kids in the first place and why are you not getting worked up about that? You know, so it's the system. Mm -hmm. It's it's another Mm -hmm. one of those situations where it's the system itself. And just to add to that, Mm -hmm. my older son, Brandon, he's in high school now. He went to a charter school in the story area. I will always vouch for this school. So I'm always telling the parents, you should try this charter school. I know that charter schools tend to have a miss or hit reputation, especially in New York City. The charter school that my older son graduated in middle school and my eight-year-old Ethan attends now, they do a phenomenal job. I can't even tell you as an educator and as a parent, they do a phenomenal job working with parents, making parents and families feel heard. That comes in such short supply. The average public school, especially in New York City, hey, I think my kid could use support in this. Well, you know, I have 30 other kids and your kid's not the only one. That's what the average response we get. Not from teachers, from principals. I actually dealt with that for a while from my oldest son until I yanked him up. I says, no, this is not okay. Absolutely not. And I put him in the charter school that he graduated in where Ethan is in now. And I can't think of one time after all the years I've been a veteran parent at this charter school where I sent an email or a text, the app they use now is talking points between teachers and parents, where I said something and they responded. I was heard. They didn't dress her right away, but it made me feel like I mattered. My kid mattered. Isn't that mm-hmm. what all schools should have? Can you imagine the reshaping mm-hmm. of what education would be like across the nation if you just made that one step mm-hmm. as a teacher or even an admin? that one step and you take a second like you know what i'm willing to hear you out just to hear you out or to see what the kid is about if you apply that practice and fine-tune it and evolve it can you imagine what it would do for all types of families all types of communities all types of schools and it wouldn't be easy but to apply that practice and mentality of compassion that your kid matters. I don't care if your kid is this, your kid matters. And it helps families and it helps families speak up. I've mm-hmm. also been guilty mm-hmm. of not speaking up before I sent my child to a charter school when they were in a public school. Like the first time I tried a conversation with a teacher about something, she didn't dismiss me, but she dismissed me without dismissing me. You know, when you say something to say something without saying it. And I felt so discouraged. And I'm like, this is not okay. And if this is happening to me, I'm a loud mouth parent. Yeah. If someone who already has the mindset of what education should be, especially early child education, and I'm a parent who speaks up, 
it took me years to get to talk like this, but not a lot of parents have that voice. Mm. Schools are supposed to be holding up that megaphone for parents and families to make their voice loud and heard at least. It really does take that one step just to make them feel acknowledged and heard. And when you make a child and their family heard and not even understood, you can even put that aside, just heard. If you validate that they have something to say, that's the kickoff for what should be happening later on. Whatever the issue is, whether it's a bully or my kid doesn't understand your homework assignment or they can't show up for a test because they're sick, whatever it is, that is the starting point for meeting a student needs. That is the starting point for students' best interests. I also want to echo what you said earlier about educators and teachers <laughs> not being paid enough. I think it's a big problem with our culture where teachers and caregivers are not compensated abundantly. You know, I feel like those are one of the most important jobs ever in the world. And to be able to trust your most precious yeah. belonging for hours, well, not during the pandemic necessarily, but to be able to do that to other individuals outside of your family, I think teachers deserve the utmost respect and compensation, not just in words and praise, but in financial compensation and incentives to attract more a talent, not just as a calling, yeah, as a martyr exactly. to sacrifice yourself all for the benefit of children to become a great uh, teacher. But I wish systematically we could structure our society so that education and caregiving gets that talent and commitment, extra training, yeah, so that that can flow over to the children that kind of right. generosity and grit and role modeling without being resentful, maybe under-resourced themselves, the teachers, so that they can feel free to be caring. Kind of yeah. like as parents, right? Everyone has to feel appreciated and validated and recognized, whether it's in their homes or in their organizations, so that they can be their best selves. And to be a best version of yourself as a teacher, I would imagine that would have huge impacts on children yeah. and families. So it's a systemic thing. And as an educator yourself, I'm sure, and a parent, yeah. I hear you. <laughs> so thanks for sharing that perspective. Is there anything that you might want to add that I haven't asked you? I guess I just want to say to whoever's listening that any parent who is struggling with whatever that whatever your circumstances, whatever your paycheck looks like, whatever your house looks like, your location, your job, whatever, 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 your kid matters. And mm. if you don't feel that, or if your child doesn't feel that, it's not okay. If you ever get that thought or feeling that, oh, I shouldn't bother my teacher or the principal, or I shouldn't speak up. No, you speak up. There is a support system. There are parents who are willing to hear you and support you. And there are teachers out there who are willing to hear you. And to take it from me, I'm an educator and a parent. And to see both sides, to live an experience and have testimony from both sides, you do have a voice and you have 100% every human right to advocate for what you think is best for your child. You might be wrong one day. You might think my kid belongs in this class or shouldn't get this test. You, you could be flat out wrong. 
but you have the voice. You have the right to be wrong and you only could be wrong by voicing something. And that's where it starts. Mm -hmm. Don't ever feel bad about trying to reach out to a teacher. At the same time, teachers do have it rough. And I totally get, and yet, yeah, just to mm -hmm. echo what you were saying earlier, that teachers do end up resigning because of resentment. A low paycheck, that's half mm -hmm. of it. That's half of it. I've worked in a job where I wasn't even making minimum wage at the time, but I loved it. I was being with kids, babies and toddlers all day. That's what does it for me. And my heart was there. And if your heart is happy at your job, you're going to work it out. Unfortunately, it got to a breaking point where I didn't feel valued. I didn't feel heard. I was trying to advocate for my needs and balance advocating for children's needs. And I was saying, guys, I get it. Let's make it work. Let's figure out something. I don't know, but let's start somewhere. I tried jiggling the knob on that door so many times and it wouldn't budge. And when it gets to that, that is why teachers resign. And then that's why they get a bad rep. And, oh, but you shouldn't be in there for the paycheck. Oh, like, no. oh my goodness. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I can't tell you how many times that, you know, treated as babysitters and nannies, especially now during the pandemic, send kids school because I, I get it. You have work. Teachers really are not just babysitters. I can understand why they could be seen in that light, especially for the preschool daycare setting when they're infants and toddlers. The perspective on education is very minimalized compared to when kids go to quote unquote grade school. Real, yes, thank you for exactly real school. But when you scratch the surface of both, they are equally just as important as the other. And education does start from infancy and we have to start treating it there. But the only way we can get to the point, if we start treating the educators with the same respect as well. Yes, that you would want for your own child. Absolutely. Yes. I believe in the earliest years, any early care Absolutely. is education for young children. One last question. We talk about abuse mm -hmm. or neglect, and I'd like to address this. I want to make sure that we address what are some of the signs that you as a trained early care educator might look out for? You mean looking for signs of abuse from a child? Or neglect, abuse or neglect. There's a lot of different ways. Not to be Captain Obvious, but if you see any marks or bruises on a child or anything like that. And there's actually a specialized training for that mm -hmm. in terms of placement and location. Colored. I won't get into the finer details of it, but there's actually a training tool. Not just say, oh, I see a bruise in a child I'm calling. That it takes a while to get to that step. If you see on the areas where most kids get bruises and cuts and scrapes from like climbing a tree or playing outside, whatever. So that's a training itself. As a mandated child abuse reporter, we apply the same kind of investigative lookouts when it comes to neglect or verbal abuse and trauma. If a child doesn't seem very interested in codependent play, now obviously an infants, young toddlers, whether they're walking or crawling, they're not quite able to apply and incorporate or even understand coordinated play, sort of like, I'll stack this block, you stack this block. So they're not there yet. But one of the signs of neglect is if, let's say if you have a two-year-old playing with blocks in their own, and if another child comes just to next to them and doesn't necessarily take from their pile of blocks, but just happens to grab a block that's scattered in the area, the child will watch them, what are you about to do? Or 
will seem kind of withdraw mm-hmm. or take a step back away. Or if another child was to approach that child, maybe it's an older child in a mixed age group, which is a common thing in early childhood settings. Mm-hmm. It can be a floor. You'll say, do you want to play blocks with me? Because you know how some older kids like playing with little kids because they think it's cute. If they seem mm-hmm. to quickly withdraw or say no or don't make direct eye contact and don't even seem interested, it may even seem frightened. There's nonverbal ways mm-hmm. for that to be displayed where they can right. turn their back or they might lift up their hands in a sort of protective kind of way where they cross their hands or turn away from them. So just seem socially withdrawn and either not aware of their classroom or daycare environment or selectively and intentionally choosing not to pay attention and engage. So lack of even the basic engagement where a kid could just pass into the kid and just look at them and smile like, oh, hi, I saw you. And then they just run away. If that is absent, that's definitely a red flag. And of course, children, when they're older, they have more skills evolved. They might be able to communicate things, but it's fear-based. Typically, children will not say anything or report things because they're afraid of getting in trouble or going home that day. And finding right. out like, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. did my mom and dad find out that I said something? And that's what I went through. You knew to police your own behavior so that you wouldn't get your family in trouble, for example. Yeah, because at the end of the day... Children might do that. Exactly, because during the darkest moments of my childhood, I still loved my parents. Kids don't choose to stop loving. And I didn't develop... Like, I have trust issues at the wazoo. Forgiveness and trust is not my forte at all. I'm still working on it. And you're supposed Mm -hmm. to learn that Mm -hmm. from your parents. Even though I didn't learn that from them, Mm -hmm. I still love them because they were giving me my basic needs. I was fed, I was clothed, and I was given warmth if I was too cold. I was taking a doctor's appointment. So my basic needs were met, but I was not supposed to be loving my parents based on those circumstances alone. So that's what I unfortunately ended up Mm -hmm. developing. I still love them, but it was fear-based love. It was like, I love you because I need you and my survival depends on you kind of love. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Obviously, the bottom of that pyramid should meet my basic needs. But the top of that pyramid is supposed to be because you hug me when I have boo-boos. You kiss me. You tell me it's okay. I made a mistake. You give me teachable moments. You explain why these rules are in place. You explain things. You don't yell at me. You don't make me feel bad for spilling that cup of juice on the carpet, things like that. You make me feel safe and that I can go to you for things, whether it's something good like a hug or a kiss or something bad like, oh no, mommy, I forgot my homework at school or something. That's the kind of love Mm -hmm. and relationship that should develop. Of course, every household culture plays a part and all that stuff has no spin on it, but the basis should be Mm -hmm. that. And I have actually witnessed severe lack of that kind of loving, connective parent-child relationship with other schools I've worked with where I did end up red flagging and I had to call in a supervisor to say, hey, I think there's neglect going on. And even that is like a huge process alone. And I would say it wasn't because of my training as a mandated child abuse reporter. It's also because of my experience. So I do have a, a spidey sense to look out for things like that. Yeah. 
whenever I see someone struggling or there's something about their personality or the way they speak or don't speak or how they handle things, I'm sure I've had my cases where I slip and be like, why are you doing it? What's wrong with you? I'm not going to be like every single time. I'll be like, let's talk about it. Let's have a cup of Java and figure it out. <laughs> but I would say like 75%, that is usually my go-to thought process when having conversations. Can you imagine what schools will be like what life would yeah. be like the world be like you? okay yeah. i don't think you're choosing to be this a-hole in this moment <laughs> something happened to you and i very much would like to know it doesn't mean i'm gonna fix it for you it doesn't mean i'm gonna even be more accepting understanding or maybe i will be but just to have that wonder or that's awareness of wonderment. Like I said, like stepping stones, that is like the first little baby stone, like pebble to what can be, what can birth into something so wonderful later on between those two people or group of people, whoever it is, what setting it is. All it takes is that one little thought process. And can you imagine what our world would be years from now with COVID and remote and every yeah. isolation, especially with yeah. what people are dealing with COVID and isolation alone. Imagine what our world, the state of our world is going to be in years from now. I wonder if COVID mm -hmm. did that to you or isolation. Imagine if everyone had that sense of, I just wonder. Next up, imagine if people actually started saying it. You'd be so surprised having people keep it to themselves. Mm. No, I don't want to bother this person. Why am I sound silly? No, people, you don't sound silly. Speak up. It's okay to say and think you are thinking of that for a reason. Help. Normalize Wonderful. it, right? Yes. Normalize, Normalize the conversation. It. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that you said that. I'm a business administrative for a private therapy practice that focuses on mental and behavioral health wellness, which I've learned so much within the past year and a half. I love my job. It's not my field, but I'm very much looking forward to it when I go back to teaching, especially with kids. So mm -hmm. sometimes when I'm inquiring mental and behavioral elements within the practice, not about clients, just stuff about me, I've learned so much. It's opened so mm -hmm. many pathways and avenues with just thought process and awareness of wonderment alone. And I want the whole world mm -hmm. to have that. It opens our eyes and our hearts. Mm -hmm. It opens yeah. openness <laughs> to each other. And it nourishments acceptance and approval and being okay that not okay. How many times people say that? How many people say it, but they don't apply it? It's okay that you're not okay. We say it, but yeah. is that really ingrained? And yeah, mm. absolutely. Curiosity, overtaking it as is. Just wondering. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really the crux of my belief that people can always yes. course correct. Even if yeah, one mistake, two mistakes, three mistakes don't define who you are as a person. It's we are always and, and self-correction. So, that's like the beauty because yes. nobody likes being corrected from anyone else. Let's keep it real. Some people are better accepting than others, and some are just great, and some are just but when you find yourself in a place where you're initiating on yourself to ed self-educate about the world, your children, your work, your life, so anything, your brain is like a fire. Same thing when your neurons are firing, when you want to learn. I've always wanted to learn how to make this or how to cook that. When you're in that heat of the moment, that's, th that is opportunity knocking on the door. And you can share that. It doesn't have to stay within you. You can share that. You could be like, and I'm always hitting up people. Hey, guess what? I learned this. I learned, you want to learn this? No? Okay, that's cool. How about this? How about you? Like, I'm always bothering people. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm that annoying friend. Like, <laughs> I used to be bad at it. I told totally the guy quite a bit. 
<laughs> but yeah, with the practice I'm working at, it's the Root Therapy NYC. If anybody wants to you know, check it out, I'm not trying to do advertisement. Just I feel I I do love my job. I'm very passionate mm-hmm. about, it, especially when it comes to we do have children, mm-hmm. adolescent cases, and so whenever that pops up, I was like, <gasps> it's not going. Oh, what's wrong with this kid? And my heart does that, but. A part of me also goes mm. from the educational and early childhood standpoint, oh, what's wrong with this kid? Can I learn something to this? Can this something like apply my practice in my future school or my kids if I have another kid? It's like, how can I recirculate this useful vital information to me so I can outpour back into the world? So that's how I look at it. Right. But when you get that spark, like I'm learning, I want to investigate and explore more. I guess that's something I would also like to have my kids and kids take away. When you feel that click and it's not, it keeps you up at night that's something you're passionate about. That's a sign that you're passionate and you go for it. You seize it. Yeah. Thank you so much much for having me. For sharing so much of your wisdom. Is there a way for people who might want to keep in touch with you or connect with you? A lot of the parents and moms, they're absolutely more than welcome to send me a message. I am an avid Facebook user. I will just say, even from my personal interactions with you, you are very warm and non-judgmental. I find that you have the language to be able to explain things and, and break it down in a way that um, is easily digestible. You can reach out to Angie. <laughs> Thank you. This was really great too. I don't get this opportunity to really speak what's in my heart that's experience-based, training-based, goal-based. So I can't thank you enough for this opportunity and for everyone listening. Yeah, totally hit me up. (laughs) I would welcome anyone who has advice or collaboration. If anyone wants to say, hey, I heard your podcast. I wasn't feeling what you said this. Bring it on. I like brainstorming. I love debates. I love talking. So yeah, I do (laughs) love talking with the parents very much. Thanks for joining me, Danielle, on this week at Early Care for Every Kid. We can continue the conversation in future episodes, but as a jumping off point, be sure to check out some of the resources related to this episode at earlycareforeverykid.org slash four. You can connect with me on Instagram at earlycareforeverykid or follow along at earlycareforeverykid.org. Till next time, take care.